630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite teams. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on the voice of your Edmonton Oilers and Eskimos. 630 Chad. Happy New Year. Hope you've had a great start to 2018. Thanks for spending a little bit of time with us tonight. My name is Reed Wilkins, Inside Sports on Oilers and Eskimos Radio 630. Chad, this is a best of edition of the show. Great chat with Ken Reed from Sportsnet, who recently published his third book called Dennis Marouk, The Unforgettable Story of Hockey's Forgotten 60-Goal Man. Yeah, this is book number three. It's kind of weird. Some people call me author. I think that's still weird because authors are smart people with (laughs) desks and glasses, and I'm just some dude who wrote a couple books. But I'll take it. Well, we could get you uh, a nice pair of glasses and maybe, uh, I don't know, an old-fashioned typewriter and a smoking jacket, and you'd look really astute. I do wear contact lenses, so I could just start wearing glasses, but I'm thinking of turning one of the rooms in my house into an office. So, you know, maybe, maybe I could be astute. You know, I'll go for that, whatever works, whatever gets me through the day. And I got a fourth book coming out next year if it makes you even more impressed. Oh, my God. Well, that, that makes me incredibly impressed. Am I allowed to ask what, we are not even talking about book number three yet. Am I allowed to ask what book number four is going to be about? Sure. Book number four will be Hockey Card Stories 2, a sequel to hockey card stories. So there you go, 59 more cards. Breaking them all down again. Already doing the sequel. Okay. So I, I got to ask you, though, like when you were, I don't know, like a, a kid, a teen uh, in your 20s, did you think, okay, I got to write a book someday, or was this more of a recent drive? Um, I always wanted to. I, I read a ton of hockey books as a kid, basically my whole life. and My brother and I always floated around the idea of writing a book, and I've had some ideas over the years, but when I got to Sportsnet and I actually had some some free time, and when I say free time, I when I started here at Sportsnet, I was anchoring three nights a week, so I had the weeks off, basically. I was working Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so I had a lot of time. I uh, had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays off, and didn't have any kids, and didn't have a golf membership, and all things like that, so then it was time for me to finally tackle an idea I'd been kicking around, and to be honest, it... Uh, once the first book came out, uh, the idea of a second book I found appealing because I really enjoyed the process. It didn't make me rich by any means, but I found it quite fulfilling. I found it quite interesting, and and uh, book number two came about, and then I was asked by uh, Dennis to help with book number three, and I, I, I guess it's something I just enjoy. I always hear authors use the term labor of love, and that's definitely true, so it's just something I, I kind of fell into. I still consider myself a broadcaster first. But, uh, yeah, the, the writing thing is its very fun. It's, it's fulfilling for sure. All right, so the latest one, and, and you touched on it there, Dennis Marouk, the unforgettable mm-hmm. story of hockey's forgotten 60-goal man. So you kind of touched on it, but I, I'd love to get more details. He like he reached out to you. Did you guys have to sit down and talk and see if you had some, some chemistry yeah. or connection with storytelling? How did it all get rolling? Yeah, well, Dennis was in my hockey card book. I talked to him about an old OPG card of his, and I gave him a copy of the book at a golf tournament and it turns out I guess he liked the story that I had written about him and um, him and a, a buddy of his were talking and they said you know Dennis was he was saying to Dennis you should write a book and Dennis no I don't need to write a book and 
they want to buy a book and they'll, you know, I don't know what thing, first thing about writing a book. And so, well, I should reach out to Ken. They like his story in the hockey care book. Okay. So Dennis's buddy reached out to me and I agreed to go to lunch with Dennis. And, you know, we met for lunch and I, I knew Dennis was a great goal scorer and things like that. And I said, okay, let's, do you mind if I record our lunch just, you know, for half an hour? Well, we ended up sitting there for five and a half hours. And once Dennis started telling me about his life off the ice and just how out of whack it was and how off the radar it was and how it was so much different than any other life I'd heard about after hockey, I was convinced I had to do his book. So we worked on it for a year and a half, two years, and probably got about 20 to 25 hours worth of interviews done. And uh, here we are a few years later with a book. So it was it was something we both enjoyed to do. It got a little intense at times. There's some pretty intense stories in the book. There's some lighthearted stories in the book. So we went through the gamut of pretty much every emotion. So it was uh, it was a lot of work, but a lot of fun to do. You know, I, I'm, I'm interested, Ken, and... Hey, you know, I, I get to interview people every day. That's that's the best part of my job. You've obviously mm-hmm. done thousands of interviews in your career. And whether you're doing TV or radio, if you get something honest or emotional, you often go to yeah. your colleagues and say, oh, man, it's beautiful what I got, or he really opened up, or he made, mm-hmm. you know, he's going to make people cry or laugh. But it must have been the experience, you'll fill in the blank here, but the experience must have been different that you're spending this much time with a guy, mm-hmm. probably often one-on-one. And like you said, some of the stories were, uh, he kind of bared his soul, didn't he? He did, and it was. I mean, I mean, Dennis, at the at the start of our interviews, he wouldn't give much details, right? Because he doesn't know me yet. He doesn't trust me. But, I mean, he'd say, oh, that was a tough time in my life. So then by the 10th the hour together, we're, we're related to one another. And he basically told me that one time he tried to kill himself and he didn't want to tell me that. He didn't think that I, you know, he, he was shy about telling me that. He was depressed and had a lot of anxiety. And I said, well, I've got anxiety, Dennis. That's something I've dealt with for a long, long time and something I still deal with. So once we kind of opened up to each other, we connected and we trusted each other. So we had to we had to build a trust because you're right, it's, it's tough to build a trust with someone when it's just a 10-minute interview. But Dennis and I spent a lot of time together. We're actually, I'd call him a really good friend right now. So we spent a lot of time together. Uh, there's a lot of trust there. I was in the hospital with him two days after he had uh, quadruple bypass surgery just over a year ago. Um, you know, his, his dad just passed away. So we, you know, we we talked about that. And but yeah, we built a lot of trust. And once he realized that I wasn't just some journalist broadcaster guy, that I was a real human, he could he could open up to me a lot more. And I had to respect the fact that he wasn't just a hockey player; he's a human as well. So. There's a lot of human stories in there that that just happen to have happened to a hockey player. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Ken Reed joining us from Sportsnet. Used to work here in Edmonton. The new book, Dennis Marouk, The Unforgettable Story of Hockey's Forgotten 60-Goal Man. It sounds like you got some great stuff in there. Emotional. i got to ask you a lighthearted question, though, Ken. I know you appreciate those, too. Uh, Are there any mustache stories? Well, we don't beat around the bush, Reed. Uh, chapter two is how to grow the Fu Manchu. Like, nice. we get right to it. I think we 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 start this chapter by saying it's time to address address the white uh, used to be black but now gray elephant in the room, which is Dennis's famous Fu Manchu. So Dennis basically tells the story of how he came about to grow the mustache, um, how you too can grow Fu Manchu. But it was funny. He, he talked about what the mustache meant to his on-ice identity, and it's actually kind of funny because his mustache, in a way, it made, as you know, it made him look pretty mean. And Dennis had to play the game with an edge because he was so small. 
and playing in the 70s and the rough early 80s, it was a tough, nasty league. So Dennis had to be nasty. And the mustache made him look a little nastier, right? The big Fu Manchu and the long, nasty hair. So it kind of it complemented how he had to become this really, really edgy player. Because when he was in junior, he was he had the mustache, but he was just a pure goal scorer. When he got to the NHL to survive, he had to be a, a real a, kind of a jerk at sometimes to other guys on the ice. So this tash kind of made him look like this big, mean guy. So we actually do talk about the role that his look played in helping him survive in the NHL. And and if you do have the ability to grow a few minutes, you'll let you know how to do it. Right. That's a, that's a, well. That's well said about how the look affected how he, how he had to play. Can um, yeah, you got. I mean, you got to look the part, right? So he did look the part. He looked like a mean, nasty little guy, and that, he he was mean and nasty on the ice at times. You know what's interesting too, Ken? I mean, obviously he scored sixty goals. I I'm old enough to remember him playing. Obviously, there weren't yeah. a lot of Washington Capitals games on television when I was a young man, mm-hmm. but I certainly remember mm-hmm. the name and know he had some prolific offensive seasons. Though it's got to be interesting. I bet you if you went up to a lot of people, even you know our generation or older, and said you know name the fifty greatest scorers from I don't know like nineteen seventy five to eighty eight or whatever that era, I wonder how many people would say Dennis Marouk. Like you, the title, you're very appropriate in the title, the forgotten sixty goal man, right? Yeah, not many, and Dennis is the first to admit that. Dennis played eight hundred eighty eight games in the NHL. He had eight hundred seventy eight points. He still holds the Washington Capitals single season record for points. I believe it was 136. Alexander Ovechkin hasn't broken that, but Dennis is the first to admit. Nobody really knows I scored 60 because I scored 60 for the Caps, and I played for the Bears, and I played for the Seals. And when I scored 60, Gretzky got 92. So who cares about when somebody right. scores 60 when they're they're counting down to 100 for right. somebody else? <laughs> Good point. So he just everything about him was under the radar. Whereas I think if a guy like Dennis had played for the Leafs and got 60. There's a guy, one of a former Leaf in the book, Builder Lego, says it best. If Dennis got 60 in a Leaf uniform, he'd be on one of those bronze statues outside the ACC. But he got 60 on a Caps team that actually had to have a Save the Caps uh, fundraiser on TV. You know the old Jerry Lewis telethons? Yep. Well, they actually did a, a Washington Capitals telethon like that to save the team on local TV as after, I believe, his 50-goal season. So he was scoring goals when his games were not on Hockey Night in Canada, when not a lot of his games were even on American TV, for a team that wasn't over the top. So he, yeah, he absolutely went right under the radar. Yeah, I wonder how many Capitals games even would have been broadcast in the in the D.C. region, like locally in the 1980s. I bet, well, I bet you it was less than a quarter. Well, a huge challenge for me uh, when I was writing the book was trying to find footage of Dennis because there's hardly any on YouTube. And one of the uh, thing about Dennis is, he doesn't remember any of his goals. If you tell us talk to Dale Howardchuck, Dale Howardchuck can remember all of his goals. It's just one of those things. Dennis can't remember his goals, most of them. So trying to find footage of him was was pretty tough. Now, after the book came out, somebody released a bunch of footage of Dennis on YouTube. That I think someone who read the book. So it's out there now. But yeah, trying to trying to find it was pretty challenging. Yeah. Well, it, incredible story, Ken. And again, you know, Dennis Marouk, the unforgettable story of hockey's forgotten 60-goal man. Christmas is uh, right away if people want uh, yep. looking for a last-minute uh, gift for a, a hockey fan. And all the best as you work on book number four. My goodness, you're turning into like... Uh, 
Uh, I don't know why Agatha Christie's the first author that came to mind, but she was pretty yeah. famous. So there you go, Ken. I'll take it. I'll take it, Reed. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, if you're looking for a story that maybe the, uh, that you you think you know a lot about hockey. You should really know about Dennis Marouk, or if your uncle thinks he knows about hockey, he should know about Dennis Marouk, because that's one of the things I love about writing stories about guys who play just a game in the NHL, or a guy who's got what you'd call a common hockey card. The stories need to be told. They deserve to be told, and that's that's why it was such a pleasure to work with Dennis on this book. That's Ken Reed, man. What a great story. Awesome work he did with Dennis Marouk. Quick timeout, then we're back with Joanne Ireland. This is Cam Talbot from your Edmonton Oilers, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 630 Chad. All right, Inside Sports on 630 Chad. Joanne Ireland, longtime reporter for the Edmonton Journal, recently published a book on the history of your Edmonton Oilers. A hundred things Oilers fans should know and do before they die. My first question, and you know my my personality, did you have to put the before they die on it? Like, did you have, did you have to, like, like, threaten people? Well, this this harkens back to my days in the journal when I would, I never wrote the headlines. <laughs> That's right. I had nothing to do with that. So you didn't title the book? I did not title the book. In fact, um, Triumph Books does a whole series of a hundred things books, and it, other than changing the name of the team, the titles remain the same. Right. So, so they may have just... ruffled other feathers than yours, but <laughs> I don't think they're going to change just for you. So it could be Flames fans, Correct. Cowboys fans, uh, whatever fans. it is. So who, so you mentioned this is part of a series. So how did how did they, were you approached? Did you have to pitch, say, hey, maybe I could do an Oilers one? I'm really curious where these books originate. Uh, yeah, no, I was approached. It's not something um, I was sitting around twilling my thumbs thinking, huh, I should write a book. Um, so I was approached about it and gave it some thought and um, thought, well, okay, and I dove in and as the deadline fast approached, I thought, what the heck have I done? And uh, got it done in time, just, and uh, here we are. How long did it take you to do it? Um, it took, well, I had lots of lead time. I mean, you know, part of it was my own problem, my own fault, we're all creatures of deadline habit, sure. and so I pushed it as long as I could. The biggest time consumer for this for me was um, research and just sort of making sure I was fact checking and making it as accurate as possible so that probably took the greatest amount of time writing wasn't as long a process as the research okay now you obviously covered the orders for what was it like 15 years 15 years yeah. so you had some first-hand accounts I did and, of a lot and of this some of it came from just um, so the the whole um, chain of events here was they sort of come and they sort of pitch the book and if you agree to it then you have to come up with a list and it has to be a hundred things and so you have to sort of you're kind of married to that list fairly early on so you had to sort of that you know come up with a hundred things I thought I could find enough information on to make it somewhat interesting for everybody but um so once that's done but I w- was in the sports department long before I started covering the Oilers so I had a lot of you know memories I guess or recollections of things that had gone on with that team so I pulled from that as well and then just sort of you know over the years you hear stories I heard stories about Bill Hunter over the years and I worked with a fellow who knew went to all Bill's press conferences and you know I still hear in my head this you know well if you don't believe me you're a goddamn liar and that was like Bill's line all the time with the media and um, you know so I I had those uh, to, to lean on as well so 
D- and did you uh, do any like current interviews? I with did. People yeah. That sorry. Were f- yes, and I did. I did obviously reach out to a lot of people and talk to people along the way. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't sort of divert too much because sometimes, sure. as you know, you're talking with someone, you have sort of a you know a tentative game plan in place, and they'll take you into another direction. So, you know, if I could, I would sort of weave some of that in. But yeah, no, I did a lot of current interviews as well, and um, you know, I reached out to Ryan Smith and asked if he'd write the forward for me, and he obliged and um yeah so it was it in the end it was fun there was like i said as the deadline came and you know running around promoting the book hasn't been my favorite uh, part of this project <laughs> although sitting here with you is another story well right because i make you, everybody feel so <laughs> yes, comfortable yes. so thanks for that all right so was it was it uh look the team has a storied history mm-hmm. um there are a lot of good stories from one era. There are a lot of not so good stories from a more recent era. Was that did that make it difficult at all? A little bit because I mean it would have been really to get easy to get fixated on the glory years. I mean that team. I mean you could have written easily written a hundred things, probably a hundred and fifty things about that team. So, but you know I mean there's a lot more to the Oilers than just that team and you know I covered them in their very dark days too and I was around for the SOS campaigns when that team wasn't even going to stay in town mm-hmm. um, so aside from the losing on the ice there was there was talk of the team and a very real possibility that team even being lost to Edmonton so you know I don't think you can ignore that and plus there's a whole generation of fans that didn't grow up with the the Oilers of old so you know you sort of try and transcend all of that and give everybody a little bit of everything and hopefully I accomplished a bit of that. Did you did anything really surprise you or was there some little detail that that you uncovered that you were like oh man I forgot about that or or even though you were around the team a lot that you never really knew knew something? Yeah there were a couple things Um, one of them and I uh, use this one a lot is Joey Moss like we all know and love Joey and I've known I knew him back when I covered the Eskimos even before moving on to hockey and um, I knew he was Vicky Moss's little brother but I didn't know that that family was 13 there were 13 children there and they played in a family band and I found a picture of Joey playing the ukulele at the age of five with the band they would travel up north and down through California and they were called the Alaska birth earthquakes which I you know something I did not know and um, so that was just sort of a little gem I found Um, another one was and again it was sort of lost in the memory banks but during the 87 Stanley Cup final Mike Keene and Glenn Sather got into this gamesmanship where Mike Keenan wanted the Stanley Cup in the locker room. They were down in the series. He thought he'd motivate his players. And he had the Stanley Cup rolled into the dressing room. And as you know, that sort of a lot of teams don't even want to look at it, let alone be that close to it until they've actually won it. And uh, he tried to do it again before Game 7. And Glenn Sather squirreled the cup away and couldn't get at it and claimed he didn't know what happened to it. But Lyle Kaczynski, the old equipment manager, had it hidden away in a trunk, I think, somewhere. And, yeah, it was just those little sort of asides to the actual fact that they've won another Stanley Cup. That's Joanne Ireland. All the best uh, to her. Really glad to connect with her. Used to see her at Oilers practice all the time. Doing some great work there with the new book. When we get back, a memorable interview with Ed Hervey. This is Mark Letestu from your Edmonton Oilers, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 630 Chet. 
Well, 2017 was quite a year for Ed Hervey. He was surprisingly fired as general manager of the Edmonton Eskimos in the spring. And then as the year wound down, he found himself joining the BC Lions as their general manager. Well, it's a good move, obviously, because there's, uh, you know, there's an opportunity to work with... Um, you know, Wally Buono, one of the greatest coaches to ever coach in the CFL. Uh, you know, David Braley, who's always been a steward in this league, um, has uh, shown a great care for this league when teams have been in, in, in trouble. Uh, he's always been there. And uh, the BC Lions is a first-class organization. And uh, I wanted opportunity to, to get back in to, to manage. And, and um, with Wally, this week, Wally's last year, and an opportunity to proceed beyond that. I felt this was a great opportunity for me. I'm curious about the relationship with Wano, and, and I mean, he's a guy I always love talking to because I always feel like I learn something when, when I interview him for you know eight, ten minutes. You're the general manager. He's the coach. He's also kind of been the face of that franchise and has a, had a lot of different roles, important roles with the team uh, over the year. I mean, do you think he's still going to be uh, involved in some of the stuff you're doing and player personnel, or how, how do you think the relationship's going to work here for this crossover year? No, I think there's going to be a, a great working relationship. We have our defined roles and responsibilities that we're going to work with, and the, but the the main objective is to build a, a team that's competitive enough to both make the postseason and, and compete for a great cup. Um, the different things that you know I was brought in to do, and the things that you know Wally will continue to do, are going to help this uh, organization and this football team uh, become a better football team uh, for next year year and I think uh, as we get to know each other and work together on building a football team I think we'll be uh, we'll, we'll show some signs that people probably did not expect going into this well I interviewed Wally the the week leading up to the game between the Eskimos and the Lions in BC Ed and Wally said in the interview we don't do well late in games. We seem to lack confidence, and we have trouble closing out games. And it was crazy because then that Saturday, the Eskimos scored two late touchdowns with two-point two, with two two-point converts to tie the game, and then uh, and then win in overtime. How how as a general manager do you think you can address maybe that confidence level and and get over the the fragility maybe that the team felt this season? Well. <laughs> It's a new season, so I don't think my necessarily my responsibility is solely my responsibility to work on the the confidence of the of the players as they're um, when they're in games. I mean, the coaches uh, are responsible to uh, make sure the players are prepared. I think what my responsibilities are to make sure that we we bring in competitive enough players to come in and compete at a high level and you know when you start when you're winning you gain confidence i think next year will be a new year for the group of guys that are uh, fortunate enough to return to this football team and you and you also bring in guys that have been there done that and uh, some young guys to add to the depth and uh, you know the things that happened this year i don't think will carry over into next season 
Ed Hervey joining us at Inside Sports, now the general manager of the BC Lions. Of course, in his previous job, Ed, uh, you were the general manager of the Edmonton Eskimos. That relationship, for, for my view anyway, unexpectedly uh, ended in April. Um, look, I know you're always a look-ahead guy, but, but I think my listeners are interested. You know, when Len Rhodes gave the news conference, he said there's a difference in philosophy uh, between me and Ed in terms of how we do business. Can you elaborate on what that difference in philosophy was and why it couldn't work between you and Len? No, I don't I don't get it cut into, um, you know, the comments that he made. And, uh, you know, the things that I'm about to say have nothing to do with that day. You know, the fans of Edmonton know that I'm all about winning football games and winning. And, um, you know, I care about the people. I'm all about the team. I'm all about projecting, you know, the environment of we. And, you know, I'm not into that other stuff that people do for themselves, right? Um, this, you know, I, I, differences of philosophy that people try to, um, you know, talk about. I keep hearing this. And, uh, no. I'm not really, uh, you know, I'm not going to comment on it. I can only tell you that I'm all about the collective we. I'm all about promoting the group. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've never been prom- um, uh, all about promoting one person. I've never been about uh, the brand of, concerned about the brand of one person. I've only been concerned about the group. You know, I could care less about all that other stuff. And but that's where I've been as a player. That's where I've been as a manager. It's all about team. So that's my my you know that's how I am. I and mean, I don't really know what anyone else's philosophy is, but that's my philosophy. There were um, you know Ed uh, Len and and talked about media access. Uh, and I don't cover the team on a daily basis. You and I always talked over the phone. I, I would describe yours and mine's relationship as professional, though we didn't deal with each other on a daily basis. Do you look back on anything and say, okay, maybe I should have treated this reporter, this media guy any differently? Maybe there needed to be more access to the players? And if so, do you, do you need to approach it any differently in Vancouver? Reed, I'm going to say this one time for all your listeners to listen, and I want them to listen very carefully. I never, and this has nothing again to do with when I was let go. I had, I've never, ever limited the access of the players to the media and vice versa. I never stopped anyone from doing anything. Okay, that's never happened. It's never been a case of that happening. I'm not sure what people are talking about as far as being nice. Here's the, another thing. When people people say the media. Right, I have a problem with the media. I don't have a problem with the media. You've always been good with me. Dave Campbell's been good. You know, uh, Morley's been good. The guys at TSN Radio have been good. Um, the TV guys have been good. You know, if you're talking about the media, and we're talking about you, know, you can talk about two writers in particular. That um, it always seems that um, if they don't get their way, it gets personal in their writing. But that you know, that would be it. Don't you know? I, I don't. I, I think it's unfair to you guys as media. It's unfair to me um, as an individual who's who's seen you and talked with you and and have always enjoyed coming on your show and the other guys' show. For me to for people to say that I've had a problem with the the media, the Edmonton media. I, I've never had the problem with the Edmonton media. I have a problem with people who are who felt that I should give them stuff because they've been around forever. 
look, my job was hard as a general manager. The coaches' jobs are hard as coaches. The players' jobs are hard. But it seems that some people are upset when their job has to be just as hard. Okay? That's that's it. And I wasn't really concerned about, um, you know, giving the club's business away. You know, the football business and the football information, I wasn't going to give it to someone the night before so they can get their story right and then shoot it out before the, the club did. I wasn't interested in doing that. I was just interested in building our football team and doing that, and that's it. But it um, it seems that if you don't do that, it gets you know people it gets personal in their in in their writing, and uh, and then you can't crack the um, me. You can't intimidate me. So you go where you know you can't intimidate. But it wasn't the football people. You could, they could not intimidate the football people. They could not intimidate me. So they found people that they could, and, and that's that. Um, you know, I mean, that's the reality. Is that uh, my my responsibility to the fans in Edmonton and the people who know me and people who've been around me and people who've worked with me. Um, you know, the people in that organization that, that always check on me, still have lunch with me, and you know, I, I, from the top floor to the bottom floor. No problems with any of them, but you know it's, it's it's time for it to be called that the um, the way that, that that I work. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a to myself person. I don't uh, get involved in all that other stuff. I mean, you know, my uh, you know you 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 hear what's said about you, and people say, why are you why don't you say anything? Because none of it's true. You know, none of it. The, the fans in Edmonton have yet to to see anything that's written about me that's true. It's just it seems like it's personal, which is a uh, you know I didn't understand that. So to to be you know and again I feel very uh, relieved to get that off my chest because um, I was tired of hearing uh, that I'm a certain way to people when I'm not when I haven't been. I was there in Edmonton for 18 seasons. You don't spend 18 seasons in an organization, go from player to vice president of football operations if you're all these different things. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't. You know, it, the, the fact is is that I um, just wasn't going to be intimidated and pushed around, and I didn't care how vicious the writing got. I wasn't concerned about that. I was concerned about the people that um, I cared about, and and I moved on from that. And people say that there's this conflict or that. Believe me, when me and the me and the, me and the commissioner, we had a conversation in Edmond in um, Regina during football week. We had a breakfast together, and we we actually had a pleasant breakfast and ended all. Um, what was seen as seen as a con, uh, controversy between us the controversy that between us basically was when we had lost our coach and we were talking about compensation and he the, 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 we were told not to get it i was the only one asking for um, to switch places in the draft with the riders if they wanted to hire the coach and we were told no don't do that don't set a precedence and, you know, I felt that it was important to our organization that we got something. And then when they said no, we said, okay, we threw our hands up and said, all right, we won't do anything. And then the next week, 
um, and Ottawa what decided that they want compensation and then the, the the league you know the commissioner decided he wanted to review it yeah of course I, I was a little bit uh, taken back by that so yeah I was fighting for the best interests of the football team so if people want to call that conflict call that what you want but the fact of the matter is is that I was doing what's best for the Edmonton Eskimo football team and I was doing it all on my own all right Ed, thanks for the very detailed and honest answer. I, I appreciate that, and I think when we talk in the future, we'll be uh, we'll be looking ahead and not looking back. I know you got a lot of these lined up today. Thank you so much for doing this, and uh, I have a standard line that I have to say to you now. I use this when I talk to people in other CFL cities. All the best, except when you're playing the Eskimos. Fair enough? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> thanks, Reed. That's Ed Hervey, never afraid to speak his mind, that's for sure. Reed Wilkins with you. Best of Inside Sports on 630 Ched. We'll come back and talk to Becky Scott about a big decision made by the International Olympic Committee. Hi, this is Ryan Nugent Hopkins from your Edmonton Oilers. You're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 630 Ched. For millions, Becky Scott, two-time Olympic medalist in cross-country skiing. Now with her racing career done, she's a member of the Athletes Commission for the World Anti-Doping Association. Spoke to her about the IOC decision to throw the Russian Olympic Committee out of the upcoming Winter Olympics. So, you know, I was pleased. I was, uh, you know, impressed that the IOC took the measures that they did. I felt this was an important and significant step towards uh, the leveling the playing field and for clean athletes. It was a strong statement. And uh, I think, uh, generally speaking, you know, people have been happy with the decision. Were, were you surprised at all? Because I think, Becky, that sometimes people who w- watch the Olympics or follow it casually, um, you know, think that there ha- enough hasn't been done to try to punish, you know, dopers or to try to even eliminate doping if that's possible. Were, were you a little surprised that they that they went this far this time? You know, yeah, there was a lot of speculation leading up to this decision that. For sure, and you know, largely based on what the IOC uh, did right before the Rio Olympic Games, which was to push the decisions over eligibility to the international federations rather than making that call themselves. So, you know, nobody really knew what they were going to do this time around because they had commissioned their own investigative committee to uh, basically confirm the findings of Professor Richard McLaren. Um, so. You know, and but, and, but once that evidence uh, was confirmed and the McLaren report was was really validated, then um, I think they really had no choice. You know, you've got a member state that's been deliberately undermining and corrupting the very rules and sort of fundamental principles upon which sport is based, and you have to take strong measures. There has to be significant consequences for this. Becky Scott joining us on Inside Sports, chair of WADA's athlete committee, former Olympic cross-country skier as well from Vermilion. Becky, um, I've been talking about this on my talk shows, and I think I have a little bit of cynicism, though, and I certainly hear some from listeners and fans of sport in general as well, where there's people saying, okay, this this is great, but is this going to discourage nations and athletes from doping in the future or is this going to make the cheaters 
try harder. When, when you hear that kind of cynical statement, what, what would you say to people like me and, and people listening who, who still might be a little cynical about this? Well, I mean, first of all, I think your cynicism is justified, and I would say it's a fair perspective to have. I, I'm not uh, completely optimistic all the time either, I'll say that. <laughs> you know, I've seen a lot and heard a lot and know a lot from this side of sport. Um, and I, I think uh, one of the things that the public and, you know, sports fans need to be aware of now is that the athletes from Russia who will be deemed eligible to compete in Pyeongchang you know, have to meet a strict criteria, but but really we don't know exactly what that standard is yet. And that's where a decision like this is strong, but the devil is in the details. So we, how many athletes we see coming from Russia, what standards they've been subject to, will they really be clean? Those are the kind of questions that the public, I think, is uh, entitled to ask at this point. Whether or not this discourages doping, you know, I would just say that it's, it's a long road ahead. It's certainly... I would say a strong statement, though, in terms of when it's been revealed or exposed that a, a state has sponsored doping, which is a significant difference between just an athlete who's been caught for doping and cheating or a team, perhaps, that's operated in, as individuals. This was a systematic, you know, institutionalized system of, of doping that was uh, involved a conspiracy and a, you know, there was a thread running from the Ministry of Sport all the way down to the national team. So... For that level and that scale of of doping, I think the answer was the only one that could have been, which was the suspension of the whole Olympic Committee. But um, yeah, will it will it change things for the better? I hope so. But you know, as I said, I I think that there's a long road to go. Well, and, and let me put it to you this way, kind of an off, offshoot of that question, and, and I think you just kind of touched on it by saying there's a long road to go. I mean, this will happen in 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 2018. There's some immediate punishment here based on this decision could it take i don't know if you want to pick a number but the olympics are every four years could it be eight 12 20 years maybe a couple generations of athletes before we we truly see the the impact of this i mean is that is that fair to say well i think the impact is, has uh, been felt already in that you know the russian olympic uh, or the russian anti-doping agency has been uh, virtually dismantled and rebuilt from the ground up. I think uh, that they have made great strides and great efforts to actually improve and change the system within the country. But there's still some steps that need to be taken in terms of the perspective from WADA, which is that there are still outstanding criteria to be met to regain compliance. And, uh, and part of that is, you know, an acceptance and acknowledgement of the McLaren report from, from the government and, and state officials. So um, I think when you when we see that and and that, that when we hear that it, it may represent the the cultural shift that I think many in the anti-doping movement are waiting for and hoping for. And, and Becky, be, before I let you go here, I mean obviously pe- people uh, know your story from competing in in the Olympics, and obviously you know you are from Northern Alberta, so a lot of people have have, have followed you and know all about you. Um, but you have you've been with WADA's uh, athlete committee for quite a while now. I mentioned you're the chair. Um, I don't know if this is an easy answer to summarize, but give, give people a, a sense of, of of what your work is now and maybe how you feel it. it uh, you're, you're contributing because I think the, you know, people hear your title and they know it's an important title, but what is, what is the day-to-day work like? <laughs> well, 
I mean, as chair of the, the athlete committee, you know, we really strive to represent the voice of the clean athletes and to ensure that it's heard at every level and every table within the World Anti-Doping Agency and really within the, the sport political movement at large. So it's, it's a very representative role in that we're trying to always ensure the athletes are heard, that the voices and the opinions and the perspectives, positions, statements are, are put out and that really that, um, you know, the athletes are stakeholders in the movement and they, and they really are, you know, the biggest stakeholder because there wouldn't be sport without athletes uh, is, is acknowledged and, and honored. And um, so to that end, you know, I have a very strong committee of people that I, that I work together with and um, share, share a lot of discussions and, uh, and but by and large working on behalf of clean athletes and ensuring that that voice and that perspective is brought to the table. Well, that's very important. Becky, thanks for your perspective on this. Really appreciate your time here on Inside Sports. Take care. Thank you, Reed. Bye-bye. Always good to connect with Becky Scott. She was a great athlete and now doing great work with WADA. You also heard from Ed Hervey, Joanne Ireland, Ken Reed, Ricky Ray, Tony Twist, and Brent Gogol. This has been the best of Inside Sports on 630 Ched. Tomorrow, Oilers and Los Angeles face-off show at 6. Game starts at 730. My name is Reed Wilkins. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Six thirty, Chad. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, weekdays at six on Six Thirty, Chad.